And welcome to Connections Radio Show, where we talk about ideas that matter. I'm glad you've made the connection and are with us today. I'm Laurie Fitz, your host. And the goal of our show is to explore a wide range of topics that challenge us to see ourselves, our community, and the world around us that get us thinking, get us talking, get us imagining, get us connected, and perhaps inspired or challenged to do just a bit more because we made the connection. So we have been dealing with COVID-19 for what seems to be forever, uh, but it's really been you know, a good solid 15, 16 months. And how are we doing? Uh, you know, We've talked about all the challenges in the midst of it, our hopes for a vaccine, the fears, the grieving. The, we saw hospitals being overloaded. And I think a lot of us are exhaling, but we're really exhaling not completely. <laughs> we're not sure. Things have changed. And what does that look like? And how do we cope? And what do we do? So I have two wonderful individuals who will be uh, with us today to help explore. Uh, we won't figure things out, but I think having a chance to talk about it gets us thinking and gets us perhaps connected a little bit more about what things we can do. So I have Lucinda Brown. She is a healthcare consultant. Uh, she's also a trained psychotherapist. And she works at the Occupational Environment Health Network with Tom Winters, who is a doctor. And he has been an occupational health physician for about 30 or 40 years. You've got infectious disease training, as I understand, uh, Tom. And you're a supervisor for docs in training at the Harvard School of Public Health. Welcome. Thank you. Tom, we're so glad, glad you're here. Oh, so glad that you're here today. So what I'd like to start out with is, you know, surviving this COVID-19. Um, and we're now at this place where we can pause. But I'd love to have you both share your stories of what it meant uh, out in Boston uh, as you were dealing with COVID-19. Um, I'm going to let Lucinda start and then we'll we'll shift over and, and have you add your, your story as well, Tom. Sure. So I was working in a hospital in Boston, and um, I remember March 13th was the day when it all broke loose. And um, we were starting to get cases. We were hearing about cases of people, travelers mostly, coming into the Boston area and um, being identified by the um, Mass Department of Public Health. And, you know, it was just growing and growing. We didn't know if this was going to be similar to flu or not. And there were just an enormous number of questions. And um, the hospital decided to uh, ask people who had any kind of medical condition where they would be vulnerable to work from home. And they started mandating this. And prior to that, keep in mind that you were forbidden from working from home if you worked for a hospital. And that was very typical for hospitals. If a nurse can't work from home, nobody can work from home. So it was a big shift to say people need to work from home. And it made us all realize this is very serious. Um, and they started calling our department, Occupational Health. We take care of the employees of the hospital. And we were immediately overrun with this tsunami of calls to our department asking very legitimate questions. Should I be worried? Should I be worried about my kid who has cancer? Should I be, what should I be doing? Uh, and luckily, because the hospital had infrastructure, we got an infusion of nurses. We had about 30 nurses join our department. We took over the whole floor of our 
of our building. And basically it was like a, you know, mash unit with extra phones and extra staff. And we just were able to deal with it. But um, Tom and I met all the time. We'd have daily conversations about what the CDC's new recommendations were that day, um, how things were changing. It was just constant change and uh, very anxiety-producing for all of us. Tom, how did, how did it go for you? <laughs> it sounds like it was yeah. similar. Yeah, no, it was chaos in the beginning, yeah. and we navigated the best we could. We had information coming in, but we didn't have good testing in the early part because uh, the CDC had developed their own test that was deficient and it was missing, uh, you know, 50% of the people that had COVID. So we were taking people with the symptoms that met the the, uh, the criteria of COVID and those we were excluding people from work. And we did this dance and built algorithms over the months and they changed every week. We got some misinformation from CDC. Our Department of Public Health was a little slow at reacting. So Lucinda, uh, Deb Barbo, another infectious disease doc that works with us, and myself, and the infection prevention control people at, at the hospital. We were at a children's hospital. I also work in an acute care hospital, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, in a cancer hospital. We were all taking the best information we could and building algorithms and kind of sharing them among all of us, you know, the Harvard Teaching Hospitals in Boston, uh, and we were doing the best we could of taking people out of work, sending them back to work. You know, in the old days, we, we didn't send them back for 14 days because we thought they were infectious, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 12 or 14 days. Well, they weren't. They were infectious for eight days. So then we could send them back to work after 10 days. And then, and then after they're exposed, we could send them back to work after seven days. So it was all over the board trying to figure out how to do this properly and and we're, we're trying to protect healthcare workers which you had to protect the infrastructure of the hospital because the healthcare workers were key at the acute care hospital and, and children's is acute care but there weren't as many pd cases early on there are now more pd cases and young young kids but the adults were pouring into the uh the acute uh, hospitals and the healthcare workers just stepped up the frontline people we were really second line, Lori. Mm-hmm. Um, we were in the back room, but we were working and seeing people and sending them to, we set up uh, diagnostic centers, outdoor testing sites, and finally went to some indoor testing sites for the asymptomatics. And boy, it was, it was a mess in the beginning, but I, we worked hard at getting it right. How different do you think it would have been if the public health um, structure hadn't been falling apart for the last 20 years? And if we had a better public health partner, would have it been? Uh, would you felt more prepared? Do you think? I'll give the first opinion. Um, I think our mass department public health went on weekly meetings. Uh, they were good, but the doctor there, you couldn't get him to make more on the fly decisions. So then it came back, and then they would say, oh, "We'll come out with something next week in two weeks." So we were stuck making the decisions, and mm-hmm. you know, I think ninety percent of the time we did quite well. We looked at CDC, World Health data. We were looking at the Chinese data as it was coming out of there. And, you know, being ID docs and training in epidemiology, you know, it's not hard to take data that you have, even though it's not randomized controlled trials, and take that data and integrate it into a, a, a system that will help protect healthcare workers and patients. Mm-hmm. 
And early on, the, the emphasis was on the vaccine more than medication, right? So how did that evolve and how looking at medication for, for folks? Well, in the beginning, there were no medications except some false uh, of the, the politicians were promoting drugs that hadn't had never been trialed and, and definitely didn't work. And so we didn't have good medications at the beginning. We had oxygen and fluids to help restore these people that had cytokine storm in their lungs and now they're uh, dehydrated and hypotensive and so you know the, the acute care hospitals were supporting the uh, the organ systems so these people could survive and get oxygenated and hopefully get ahead of, of this virus uh, and only when dexamethasone uh, was found that higher dose dexamethasone which is a steroid and it cuts down inflammation in the lung tissue, was found to be beneficial. Did we have an impact? Uh, remdesivir was a medication that came out as a pill that uh, it seemed to have some effect against the virus, but it, that didn't work out. World Health doesn't even approve it now. And then we had monoclonal antibodies that came midsummer that we would infuse into people with mild to moderate illness, and it protected them from developing uh, severe, moderate to severe disease. The most important thing was that they had to be supported by ventilation, and mostly you could do that uh, without intubation, and then they figured out you prone people, tip them over on their stomach. They did better than having them lie in the back with a tube down their trachea. So anyway, it, it was very interesting. Yeah. From a public health perspective, you really only have a few tools. And at that time, we didn't have vaccine available. So you do contact tracing and quarantining, and that's all we could do. And so, you know, we tried to follow up, and that's where public health was really at a disadvantage because they needed, you need just massive amounts of people to do all this contact tracing, uh, calling all these people, finding out if who they saw when and um, then following up with those people and then asking them to quarantine. Uh, in Boston, they started asking for volunteers and they were trying to hire contact tracers, but that takes time to get that set up. And training and who, who and how does it work even? Exactly. I have to imagine that with all the decisions that you've been describing, it must have times felt like, you know, blue wire, yellow wire. You know, <laughs> which one do I, 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 I clip? You know, it, it, the decisions were perhaps life and death in the moment, and what could you do? Well, we were lucky that we were surrounded by really smart people, and as Tom mentioned, all the hospitals in the Boston area collaborated. Mm -hmm. And um, there were some really proud moments, too. You know, it was crazy-making, but um, the Children's Hospital didn't have as many acute patients, so we sent some of our respiratory therapists to the adult hospitals. We sent equipment, um, vents that we didn't need. So there was this unbelievable cooperation between um, us trying to make decisions and then providers going to other hospitals. So that was really great to see. Well, in our next segment, I'd love to find out more about your personal lives. You know, how, how did that impact you? Uh, because not only did the hospital uh, and the, the group of hospitals change, um, your life changed. And what were some of the challenges that 
that it, that you faced and looking at your priorities and whatnot. So love to hear from both of you. Thank you so much. And I want to do a, a thank you to your occupational and environmental health network uh, and the work that you both are doing in this area. So we'll be right back. I'll just have a few short commercials and we'll learn more about uh, surviving and what's the next step. Because we're, we're not done yet. There's, there's plenty more that needs to be looked at. And how do we create a muscle memory for change? Welcome back to Connections Radio Show, where we talk about ideas that matter. I'm Lori Fitz, your host. And we've been talking about how we're doing during this pandemic. We've had some positive things happen as well as really reevaluating who we are and what we're doing. But when it comes to a pandemic, it's interesting. This isn't new. We've dealt with them in the past. And I have two wonderful people to help explore what pandemics are, how they've impacted us and how it it affects us uh, personally. So welcome, Lucinda Brown. She is a healthcare consultant, and she's also a trained psychotherapist. She works with Occupational and Environment Health Network, and she works with Dr. Tom Winters, who has been an occupational health physician for 30 to 40 years. You've got infectious disease training, and you're a supervisor for docs and training at the Harvard School of Public Health. So thank you both for joining me to kind of do a timeout discussion. Let's do a pause and talk about pandemics and really how are they impacting us. And one thing that we've talked uh, before the show is a little bit about pandemics through the history. And mm-hmm. so to share with us a little bit more about how we can put this in context mm-hmm. of history. Well, it's really interesting because a lot of people are dealing with this sort of for the first time, you know, thinking that we've never seen this before when in fact we've had the Black Death, we've had polio, um, smallpox. We've dealt with pandemics before and we've dealt with uh, vaccines being w- the major tool and what we want to we want to um, use. And, you know, smallpox was eradicated by 1980 and it didn't just go away on its own. It was because of a, a concerted effort globally to vaccinate everybody. But there was still vaccine hesitancy. And that kind of fascinates me because people are, are again, experiencing that. They're afraid of the vaccine. Um, they don't want to be told what to do. But there was an interesting case at the turn of the 20th century. Um, in fact, it was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. A gentleman there didn't want to get vaccinated. And they had something at the time they called virus squads, which is very nefarious, but they actually would go to people's homes, hold them down. They'd have the police hold them down, and then a medical person would inject them with the vaccine. And this guy said he didn't want to do it. He was afraid it would hurt him. Um, And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. It took many years. But in 1905, the Supreme Court decision was that public health supersedes individual rights and that it was your role in a civilized society that you have to give up some of your personal freedoms. And um, that is the issue right now. So I think that uh, it's, you know, it's not new. No. But it became, I think, more strikingly apparent individual rights versus community responsibility throughout this whole pandemic. Um, And the politics, of course, uh, influence this. 
But there's also the American way of I'm an individual and I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and I don't need anyone. Well, we all had to need each other during this time. Um, I mean, I can't imagine how frightening it would be to have a virus squad, you know, vac squad come. But on the other hand, I'm kind of glad they did, you know, because it did help get things. I mean, we're looking at trying to get to the 70 percent first shot by July, the 4th of July. I don't think we're going to get there. No. Uh, but it's uh, it's important that we get there. And And how do we get the folks that aren't? finding it uh, important enough right. to do something for the community. Right. So, Lori, the, the, the best analogy, a comparison of this uh, pandemic, uh, you know, H1N1, those were blips in the screen, but the polio epidemic uh, 50 years ago is the most, is the closest to this. The next closest is, of course, uh, the pandemic flu uh, of, of uh, 1918. And, and out of that one, we didn't never had any treatment. We didn't have any vaccines that became, uh, you know, that, that really were developed then. It was way too early for vaccination mm-hmm. uh, development. But the polio vaccine, of course, the Salk and the Sabin vaccines, uh, you know, remember in Minnesota, I was uh, received my uh, cube of, of vaccine and, and friends around me were becoming paralyzed. Right. You saw uh, the consequences right there. I saw the consequence of polio. And so uh, that's a vivid memory of mine. And they closed all the swimming pools. And I was in Owatonna, Minnesota at the time. And and you couldn't you couldn't couldn't circulate. And and it's almost like when we started masking people up both ways. And, and, you know, we're wearing masks outside, which seemed ridiculous to all of us. But we complied and thought, yeah, God, we're protecting people. So, you know, the, the polio epidemic, I mean, it was droplet spread. It wasn't probably aerosol spread. This is just, this is more dangerous than influenza is supposed to be droplet spread, but in confined spaces, it's it's aerosol spread. This became droplet spread, but also it became known to be aerosol spread. You go into a room where someone has a high viral load uh, and you didn't have a mask on, you could acquire it just from that one encounter for five minutes. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it, I think those two analogies are, are very important just to help us reconstruct where we're at. Well, I think and the then po- now we, we got to vaccines, but we're not to treatments yet, mm-hmm. and we're working on that. Presently, I think with the polio, one of the things that I think back because I remember my little sugar cube. We, my family's from Minnesota, but we were living in D.C. at the time. Uh, was that there was no question? There, there didn't seem to be, at least with every, there did seem to be this. It's not my. I don't have to take this sugar cube. Well, actually, there was a case where, um, yeah, it's called the Cutler incident where there was a girl that was vaccinated and she got polio in her arms. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what year this was. It was in the 50s. But um, they thought that that was odd because I guess it usually starts in the legs. And uh, it turned out to be that the vaccine itself was somehow tainted and it led to better uh, oversight of the manufacturing of vaccines. Um, so, you know, people now say they're worried about what's in it and is it mm-hmm. safe and, you know, that's huge sure. to have a safe, effective vaccine. Um, but some of that came from errors in the 50s. And the sugar cube, remember, was a, a live attenuated vaccine. So one in several hundred thousand people got polio from the vaccine. And then the Sabin vaccine came, which was an intramuscular one, and that was a dead polio uh, virus that that people didn't develop, but it was really a small number. So, and and then now this these vaccines 
have nothing to do. They're not live vaccines like measles and vex, you know, varicella. Th- these are dead vaccines, and they're just taking the spike protein and using it to, to build uh, IgM and IgG antibody once you inject it into humans. But I hear some people are afraid somehow it's going to change their DNA. I mean, th- there's these great <laughs> weird conspiracy theories about some of that, and it gets then back to... What do you believe in science? It almost becomes down to what's the truth. I mean, uh, but, who but do we trust? That's important. Yeah, you can, de- that, you can debunk that because this is an, a messenger RNA virus. It doesn't affect, doesn't even get into the DNA. Mm-hmm. And so, some of these vaccines, the adenovirus ones, they they don't get into the uh, DNA of our cells. They they do their thing by by uh, build, helping to build antibodies in other cells in our body. So it. It's pretty crazy how people it is. have and, perceived this. And for me, it, it comes back down to truth. I mean, science for a long time is something that we all could kind of shake our heads and go, well, yeah, that's science. But now when you have individuals that are not wanting to believe in science and they want to you know, not believe in re- uh, replicability and all the good things that science gives us and want to create a conspiracy story – I mean, they're the ones that are going to be most at risk right now. I look at the southern states with very low vaccinations and this variant of the Delta that's now Delta Plus uh, is looking really dangerous. And what could that look like? Uh, and for me, part of it also was when when we were looking at wearing masks and making sure that we had our vaccination, it wasn't just for ourselves. It was for the people we loved, you know, who are vulnerable. You know, how are we connecting with the people that we love and giving back through our gestures, whether they be how we wash our hands and put on a mask or, or get a vaccine? How are you coping with folks that are denying science? You you have to spend a lot of time with them and teach them the science. And I think we remind ourselves that the, the CDC uh, got tainted partway through this last administration because they attempted to infiltrate political statements to CDC statements. So we couldn't believe everything coming out of CDC. Uh, Remember that, Lucinda? Oh, yes. And so so the trust there gets broken. Yeah. So we, and and so now with Walensky, I mean, it's coming back. And I think that the trust, but CDC, the the morbidity mortality weekly review is kind of the uh, Torah, the Bible, the, uh, that, that we look at uh, weekly as infectious disease docs, and that information just was, was misinformation coming out of the, a federal agency. So now it's back. Now, so we spend a lot of time coercing, uh, just teaching people science, and a lot of these people are apathetic. They've kind of put this off to, to wait, make sure everyone else didn't have bad reactions. They didn't have time to get vaccinated. Those are the there's hesitant people and apathetic people. Two, two groups, and it's it's very challenging. I'm on a committee, uh, a national committee, to try to figure out how do we break break through with this. And you know, the religious leaders at all sects have stepped up, and they're doing that work in, in the, the temples and mosques and churches, and uh, and then going to the community and the primary care docs, and everyone's it's all hands on deck, and everyone's doing their best at getting to this. But I think still that group. Primary care docs are key here because they have one-on-one conversations with these people aside from, you know, their group of people who are, you know, holding signs and anti-voicing their anti-vaccination opinions. So 
that can be where somebody can ask questions like, what is really in this and mm-hmm. what does this do? And they trust their providers, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. So I think once the primary care docs get the vaccine, I don't think they do right now, but um, I think it'll be a lot easier to reach some of those people that are still holdouts. Yeah, they're distributing it up here in New England now. Okay. And a lot, most states have given them uh, access to the vaccine. And, and, and I agree that the people have relationships with their PCPs and they trust them. And that's the best person to do that messaging. Yep. And as we talk about trust, my uh, radio station trusts me to go to commercial. <laughs> I have sometimes run through it. I ran through this one as well. So I do need to take a break. Uh, but thank you for joining us uh, on Connections Radio Show as we discuss the pandemic and our ongoing challenges and how do we make sense out of all of this and how do we start coping with change in a new way? So stay with us. We'll continue our conversation uh, and learn more about ways to be thinking about this with both Dr. Tom Winters and Lucinda Brown. Connections Radio Show, where we talk about ideas that matter. I'm Lori Fitz, your host, and I have two terrific individuals who are sharing ideas with us about living with the pandemic and challenges that we faced and challenges that we continue to face. They're both with the Occupational and Environmental Health Network. We have Lucinda Brown. She is a healthcare consultant. And Dr. Tom Winters, who is an occupational health physician. So welcome, you guys. So glad that you're here and exploring these ideas with us. And we've been talking about how the pandemic has hit us, pandemic through the centuries. How do we deal with change? I think one of the more critical issues that are facing us is going back to school and especially colleges and universities. Yeah, it's very controversial. Um, There are many colleges that are requiring the COVID-19 vaccination for their students. Um, And there's a precedent for that. They already require measles, mumps, rubella, chicken pox. You know, that's pretty Mm -hmm. common for um, daycare centers, uh, elementary schools, and colleges to require these vaccinations for students. But they're struggling with the staff. Do they require it for faculty and staff as well? And um, the debate is, we know that if you mandate a vaccination, that your vaccination rates increase. But it also can create some ill will. So can you get a close enough vaccination rate by using incentives and peer pressure to encourage people to be vaccinated without having to be heavy-handed? Um, is it worth it to be heavy-handed about it? And so, peer pressure amongst staff. Staff, yep, yep. Um, and a lot of people do want to do it, but then there's people, of course, who say you can't make me, and I don't want to do it, and I'll do it if I have to, but I don't want to. Mm-hmm. And so, but I think for a college and university, those pools are so intermingled. They're in the same labs, they're in the same classrooms, the same athletic facilities. I think it's hard to mandate it for one group and not another. Well, we're all humans, right? I mean, it's not like there's some sort of special difference between a staff and a a student. Right. And we often think about the rights of the person that doesn't want to be vaccinated. Well, what about the rights of the person that is vaccinated Mm -hmm. and they come back to work whether it's in a, any kind of office environment or a college, 
and they're they're vaccinated, but they're working with people who are unvaccinated. What if they feel unsafe? What right. if they claim that now their employer is not providing a safe environment for them? Well, Tom, I have a question about that. It, it seems to me that when someone does get COVID, that it, as a host, it actually can change the uh, the COVID-19, right? So we've got the Delta variant. It seems that if you have more of these going out there, the variants are going to get uh, multiplied and that it becomes more dangerous to have these variants and dangerous for folks that may have even had their shot. Just because you've had your shot doesn't mean that you won't get sick. It's just hopefully you won't get as sick and you won't have to go to the hospital. But what if we get a variant that, that does get you that level again, you know, where you might have to go to the hospital? Yeah, two, two answers to that, Lori. So the, um, the variants so far, the, our vaccines have outstripped the variants. So we're ahead, mm-hmm. even with the Delta variant. And that's important. And, uh, and then what you should know is that in these asymptomatic testing programs at universities, at least in the Boston area, where students are mandated to get tested twice a week and faculty once a week, that we're seeing eight people have been vaccinated and now they have their PCRs are positive. But guess what? They're asymptomatic. They have very low viral loads. And they're probably hardly infectious. So the vaccines so work. The good part. Yeah. The vaccine works. Yeah. And so the people that aren't vaccinated, they're going to get sicker. And we're already seeing that in some of the pockets around the country where they have vaccination rates in some counties of 30%. You know, and, and those people are getting sick and in the hospital as we speak. And they're continuing so it. You know, they're continuing having it be part of our life. I mean, if we had more people vaccinated, it seems to me it wouldn't be as big of a threat. But as it uh, it just seems to me that we are putting people at risk by have, having people not take the vaccine. Yeah, we, we're, we're ahead of it now. And then, and then you should know, and I'm expecting CDC in the next month or two to come out and tell us that we'll need to get, uh, you know, people we've been, who've been vaccinated are going to get our booster in the fall or winter, mm-hmm. and that'll be the mandatory vaccine. Uh, the Harvard, most of the Harvard teaching hospitals just last week are mandating vaccination for uh, healthcare workers, uh, this vaccination, because of the uh, challenge down the Methodist Hospital, Methodist Houston Hospital, uh, several of the workers challenged the vaccination mandate that they had made. A federal judge threw it out, said the vaccination, public health, as Lucinda said earlier, overrides personal, uh, personal rights. And the community does deserve to be in a healthy uh, environment. How have the employers reacted to employees asking, you're putting me in an unsafe environment? Well, so just Lucinda, you can explain that. We've done that with flu. We offered an out for some people. Lucinda, explain that. Well, some I think some people are, um, they're just not sure yet because a lot of this hasn't played out in the courts specifically for COVID-19. With flu, you know, it's a little bit different. Some places say if you can't get the flu shot, you can uh, wear a mask, which Tom and I agree is very hard to enforce. So now people are more used to masks. So that's a little bit better. Um, If somebody is, uh, you know, concerned about other people not being vaccinated, they might be working from home. We might have to be looking at reasonable accommodation for them. And um, it raises the question of working from home. Is that going to be a permanent thing in our future? Um, 
we found that in the past a lot of people couldn't work from home and now and then they were told they had to work from home and it worked pretty well and all the fears about we'd never be able to manage productivity and people would just you know sit around doing their laundry instead of working we found that was all unfounded and people were very productive and it's going to change our future uh in the workplace because more and more people are going to prefer to work from home, at least part of the time. They don't want to deal with the commute and the expensive parking and crowded cities. Well, the cities will, may become less crowded <laughs> if we're not having the, the if, if we're not having commuters and more people are working from their right. home. And the same with universities. I mean, there, you know, there was a lot of classroom work uh, where people were able to do it from home. Not everything, you know, a lot of, of training is hands-on, especially clinical training. Um, so th- that can't be done remotely, but a lot can be done remotely. So it's going so to change we'll everything. Allow, so we're going to allow religious exemptions in these hospitals and uh, in the universities as well. But the most important thing is that these people, um, there are central workers, and mm-hmm. you need to have central workers on uh, on the front lines. So you can't, they can't work from home. So the and the EEOC has told us that a, a, an employer can mandate that people uh, be vaccinated that return into the work environment. So I think the federal, uh, the justice system is supporting us as we speak. So I think we're not going to get, we'll get pushback, but we're not going to get a lot of pushback. And I think we're in a better place than we were for mandatory flu vaccines when we did that 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And you should remember, this is much better effective vaccine than the flu vaccine. Well, you bring up the EEOC, but what about OSHA? I mean, I know that that's being pushed as well, you know, safety. Is OSHA being explored for um, how folks feel about safety in the in their work environment? Yeah, OSHA came out with a standard. They have an OSHA stand, COVID standard, came out about a month ago. And it's just stating all the things that we're already doing to protect healthcare workers in the workplace. So it it doesn't give us any new, uh, new a new roadmap to explore because we're already doing it. But I think the, the uh, Labor Department came out uh, with with a, a standard, so it's an OSHA standard now, how to protect people during the COVID period. And so I think we're we're already in good shape because we've been doing it and we know what to do. Well, I know one thing, listen to that you've mentioned to me before is there's expectations on employers about what that means and expected health benefits and expected yeah. what they do. But what are we expecting employees' responsibilities? Right. Today? So we expect a lot of our employers to provide health benefits. What about the employees? Do Are they expected to take a role in this and not work when they're sick? Um, it wasn't that long ago when people would say, I've never had taken a sick day in my life and that was some, you know, badge of honor. And I want to say, well, that's just stupid because what it means is you went to work sick and infected your coworkers. So that's, (laughs) you know, everybody gets sick. So I do think that there is a responsibility on employees to stay home when they're sick, to to do what they can do, um, to, to comply with whatever the requirements are of getting vaccinated, wearing a mask, staying six feet away from other people if you're indoors. I think some of it comes down to that fear and trust thing again, because there are some environments where if you do take a health day, it may be looked down upon. Even if you're, it's a good thing, you should be. So how do we create an environment 
that it, it everyone expects to take uh, sick days. This is all a culture shift. This yeah. is a huge culture shift to expect people to take care of themselves um, because that in itself will be better for everybody in the future. Um, in hospitals, people work sick all the time because they feel this this responsibility to their patients. Um, and Tom and I have fought this for years that it, you're not really doing any good to your patient if you come in to work sick. Right. And you can make it worse, actually. You're, you're putting uh, – you're bringing into the environment some <laughs> sickness that may not be good for that patient. Right. So we, we came up with COVID pay during this uh, pandemic and the hostels would pay people uh, their salary to be out of work. They didn't have to file for short-term disability, go on workers' comp if it was work-related. So that worked. And now back to, Lori, to your, your uh, description of the employer's responsibility. The employer has a huge responsibility in post-COVID long-haul symptoms. Uh, 50% of people that were hospitalized have one or more symptoms uh, after uh, they've recovered from COVID. Uh, people that had mild to moderate disease, about a third of them have symptoms. And these symptoms include physical symptoms of, of a shortness of breath, chest pain, um, fatigue, uh, and the other and psychological uh, con uh, conditions include anxiety, depression, uh, personality changes, and and then brain fog, which is reported cognitive. So we are trying to get these people back to work, and so employers have to bend over backwards to let them, as Lucinda said, do some telehealth work, but then some on-site work, and let them work, you know, four hours every other day, build up to eight hours every other day. But don't don't have a flexible program and get these people back to work because, you know, someone with fatigue, and we've all been fatigued in our lives and post post-viral illness, you, you, there's a thing called fatigue, post-intensive in, in, care unit syndrome. Mm -hmm. We've all seen it in acute health care. People are just wiped out after an infection, bacterial or viral, for months. And then you have to help them get back on the horse. And we have to, we, we advocate them and we have to have employers embracing them and letting them get back to work. It's all about embracing some change and being open to that. And traditionally, people are not uh, too excited about change. But I think with this amount, amount of change that we've been dealing with, perhaps this is the best time to be looking at what do we need to do differently in the future. And we'll talk more about that after we take a quick break for some commercials and we'll come back and, and wrap up. What are some ideas for us to all think about? You know, We've taken a pause and looking at how has it impacted us. How can we figure out how to do things better and, and prepare for future pandemics in a, uh, a more powerful way that allows us perhaps uh, to be flexible about change and to maybe even listen to our scientists. <laughs> so we'll be right back after just a, a few short commercials. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show. I'm Lori Fitz, your host. We've been talking about what can we take away from this whole experience with the pandemic, and we have two wonderful people sharing some insights with us. We've got Lucinda Brown. 
She is a healthcare consultant for the Occupational Environmental Health Network. And we have Dr. Tom Winters, who is an occupational health physician. And you both have been working um, a lot in the Boston area. Uh, Lucinda's back in Minneapolis now, so we may see her to be doing some projects here in the Twin Cities as well. But your references and your thoughts and your experiences that we're sharing about today are, are mostly about the Boston t- your time in Boston. Right. And looking at where do we go from here? Cinda, give me some uh, insights of where, what you think. I, I do believe we're at a sea change moment where our world is changing. And right. I'd love to get your insights of what that means. So I think it's really important that we have structure, that we have experts that we believe in, and that those people have other people, watchdogs, ensuring that what we're getting is accurate and true. Um, It's important that we trust those people and that they have healthy scientific debate so that the uh, facts come out and... um, it's important that there's complete transparency. If a drug doesn't work, if a treatment doesn't work, we need to know that. Uh, and that's really critical for us to believe in what's coming about so that we can use these tools. And it's okay to ask those questions. Absolutely. It's important. Dr. Winter, what, what last thoughts do you have for us? Yeah, we need mutual trust among workers that their employer is going to do the right thing by them. They need to have a vote in in that decision making, and I think that this is everything's going to change because there'll be more more people working at home, people on site, and uh, and th- th- there has to be a mutual trust among all of them. And I think it'll be a successful, but it's all changed because of COVID, as we know. Yeah. And I think where we go will kind of reflect the strength of of our uh, society here in America. Well, Dr. Tom Winters and Lucinda Brown, thank you so much for joining me. I hope that I can persuade you to come back and we can continue this conversation of where do we go from here? Thanks, Laurie. Thank you. And thank you for being part of our conversation today, for listening to Connections Radio Show. Look forward to having you join us next week as well. Have a good week. Stay connected. Find ways to make a difference. I want you to run.